Hello and welcome to the Storytelling with Puck podcast. Our usual introduction aside, please be advised that the story our guest is about to tell talks about suicide. It's important to raise awareness, but if it's too much for you to listen to right now, please turn this episode off. If you need support, please speak to someone you trust or a professional. We will add links to groups that can help in our show notes. And with all of that being said, we will, as always, start with a story. Uh, yeah, good morning, Stefano. Uh, interesting when you when you ask me to consider a, a story. Um, uh, I kind of thought, what am I going to talk about here, other than what we're here to talk about today? And and I think uh, I kind of was reflecting a little bit on um, the use of social media and and LinkedIn, particularly, which is a platform that that I've been very familiar with for some ten or fifteen years now, probably. But um, um, and and just um, how there is so much in the press about the impact of social media, the negative impacts. And, and yet, you know, this has been a platform, uh, LinkedIn particularly, that has allowed me to connect with some in- incredible people. And in, in a world where, you know, we've all been isolated for so long during the, the pandemic, uh, the ability to be able to connect and engage with people that you would never meet ever in your life probably um from all corners of the, uh, the the globe um for any of the flat earth people out there um then um you know it, it's just a remarkable platform and i think you know it's, uh, nothing any more impactful than that was it was just kind of reflecting on the many people that i've met particularly in the last couple of years um that i would consider kind of friends um we may never meet physically at all but uh you know, it just this ability to be able to connect, you know, there's a strong argument how meaningful some of those connections are, but I know some of them have been extremely so. So, yeah, my story is just one of sometimes, um, yeah, we don't really appreciate just uh, the, some of the tools and the ability that we have to connect with people in in ways that we would never have imagined, certainly in my early days, uh, that, that's for sure. So there we are. That's my little thought for the day. So. Thank you very much for your thought for the day, Steve. And uh, there's a there's a lot of truth to that. We wouldn't have met without LinkedIn, and this uh, this podcast episode wouldn't be happening without LinkedIn either. So, um, yes, completely, completely uh, uh, agree with you there. Um, now we will be finding out more about you, and we will be finding out more about your story, why you were talking about LinkedIn, and, and how you connect with, can connect with people and 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 overcome a difficulty in a, in a, in a few moments. But before we do that, let's have a quick introduction to the podcast. You're listening to Storytelling with Puck, the podcast designed to show the power of stories in life and in business. Stories connect us on a deeper level which is why we'll be sharing, chatting about, and feeling the impact they have on every one of us. Your host, Stefano, is the founder of Puck Creations, and we work with your business to define a clear, consistent, relevant brand which stands out from the crowd. We use that brand to create content that makes your audience think, feel, and take action. Visit puckcreations.com to find out more. Before you do that, Steve Philip, our guest for today, has been through something most of us cannot imagine. But as you can hear, he is still positive and likes to talk about the world around and everything that's going on, including LinkedIn. But sharing his story um, cannot be easy. Uh, Even listening to it uh, sometimes isn't. But um, it's important that we do. So... There's an important question that I think we all need to ask each other more often, and this is how I'm going to start today, as I believe we need to ask it again and again. So, Steve, how are you? Uh, yeah, an interesting question, because this is a question, of course, um, I often speak to many organisations, many individuals and groups about uh, a question that we ask without really thinking about it sometimes. Um, how am I uh, at this moment? Uh, yeah, in a, in a good place, uh, doing well. How am I at other moments during the day? Not quite so good. Um, but it's a question that I think has taken on a new meaning, hasn't it, in the in the last few years as um, we talk about mental health and well-being, having all been through 
you know, some pretty challenging times with the pandemic. And of course, now with all that's happening in the rest of the world in Europe, um, how are we is, 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 is a question we need to be asking with a little bit more uh, consideration and, and asking it more than once as, as well, I think is yeah. really, really important. But yep, right at this moment, uh, yeah, pleased to be here and good to be talking with you, Stefano. Well, it's good to have you here. And uh, you're right, there's, um, I, I think I heard uh, somebody say, I can't remember what show it was on, but they were talking about uh, uh, asking the question, how are you? And following it up with, really? <laughs> because, uh, as you say, it's uh, especially um, in in British culture, I think, but in culture all across the world, um, we ask, how are you, as a just an extension of hello a lot of the time. Um, which yeah, is lovely but, to do, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, we do it without thinking, and and we're, we're you know we're, we're expecting a stock answer, a smile, and and the word fine, and then we move on to whatever it is we're really there to uh, to discover and and uh, and discuss. So uh, yeah, yeah, asking it twice, but asking you know, how are you really doing um, is maybe likely to get a very different response uh, mm-hmm. uh, much more frequently. So. I think you're right. Um, now, some people may be questioning if they don't know you uh, yet. Um, the reason that we have started on that note and, and, and what exactly it is that has encouraged us, I, I guess, to, to, to start this conversation. So um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. And if you if you don't mind, please, please tell us a little bit more about uh, your son uh, as well. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Um, yes, um, for for anyone who's who's uh, who's seen me or can see me visually on on today's podcast, um, uh, I'm clearly not a millennial. Um, I'm a man of uh, some early sixties. Let's uh, let's say who's had a career uh, working predominantly in senior management in the automotive industry in the UK and North America. I moved into consultancy in the late nineties when I returned to the UK. Um, became a director of a leadership and management uh, company, and then in around about 2008, d- decided to, to to leave a fairly secure job and company car and all that went with it as a director to set up my own coaching practice. Um, uh, not necessarily the best of timing, as it was the beginning of yet another recession. Um, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that was more a coincidence than planning on my part. Um but it was at that time, actually, I was uh, introduced to LinkedIn as, as, a, as a platform, uh, not a social media user at all at that point. And um, I jokingly say that I kind of joined Facebook around the same time purely to stalk my children and, and, and see what they were up to. But um, but that, that um, introduction to LinkedIn was fairly pivotal because it led within 12 months to me recognizing the power of that platform to engage and connect with people. My coaching practice was very much around personal branding for individuals, how they would engage and communicate um, um, with others and to do business. Um, and so began a journey with LinkedIn that saw me create a consultancy called Link to Success. Um, for the next 11 years, worked with companies all through the UK and in Europe and overseas, from Harley-Davidson to Toyota to the British Red Cross to all kinds of small to medium-sized businesses, business schools, law firms, uh, accountancy practices, uh, really showing them how to engage and connect and, and build meaningful relationships in business, um, You know, with very much an end goal there of attracting more uh, clients or mm-hmm. meaningful connections of some kind. Um, and in fact, I was delivering just such a workshop to a large uh, automotive group in the Midlands in Solihull on December the 4th of 2019. I had a full day. Uh, that day was a, a Facebook workshop I was actually delivering. I used to um, look at all aspects of social media. Uh, and um, left that meeting to get into my car to drive around about three and a half hours at rush hour back to Harrogate in North Yorkshire, where I live. Um, and as I put my phone into the holder on the dashboard, uh, I received an incoming call from Jordan's girlfriend, recognised her name appearing on the screen. And um, not unusual to receive a call from her, but not something that happened frequently. So, of course, I answered that phone in my usual kind of upbeat way. Um, and then the next two minutes of my life got turned upside down as she 
through tears and distress, told me how she'd arrived at my son's house, Jordan's house, um, to discover he'd taken his own life. And at that moment, of course, the world just changes for you. Of course. Um, I, I could hear it in the way you spoke, and I felt it when you said the words, even though I knew they were coming. It doesn't matter, I imagine, how often you tell this story. It doesn't matter how often you're explaining what happened and going through your life. When you say those words, um, it's difficult, right? Yeah, it is because, you know, it, you know, I can talk about this and I talk about this frequently. It's you know very much part of my new life now, my, my journey sharing this, this story. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a difference to kind of talking about it and there's a difference putting yourself back in that, that place, which happens for me. Sometimes it happens on these kind of interviews. Um, it, it happens often in those quiet times uh, that I have. And, and, and it's at those moments where the kind of the full impact kind of comes back um, and, and hits you squarely between the eyes when you say those words and, and really understand what they mean, um, particularly because it was such a shock uh for us at the time um so firstly thank you for telling the story um and and and, and for coming on the podcast and, and and speaking about it um and secondly i know this doesn't really mean very much but i'm i, I genuinely am so sorry for your loss um oh, no like, thank you mm-hmm. it, it, it's sometimes it feels like those words <laughs> kind of float in the air if that makes sense but I, but there's also it's also a question of what what, what else um, what else to say mm. um now, tell me a little bit more. You said you weren't ready, and it, and and it was a shock. So, so, maybe guide me through a little bit more about what your life was like, what what um, Jordan's life was like, um, and um, kind of the the moments leading up to 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 that happening. If if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, as I say, my you know my my career, you know a little bit about. Um, um, you know, as a as a as a family man, uh, Jordan's mother and I uh, separated and divorced in in two thousand and five, uh, and very amicably so, and remain in in contact and very very close. Um, since that that time, um, Jordan um, had a sister, an older sister, Danielle, uh, who now works with me at the Jordan Legacy, um, and you know we were you know, very caring, loving kind of family. We all gone extremely, extremely well. We we were all somewhat scattered around uh, the country in, in latter years. As I mentioned, Jordan was 34 at the time he took his own life. Uh, he lived not too far away from me. As I mentioned, I'm in North Yorkshire. He was just over the border in West Yorkshire uh, in a suburb of, of Leeds. Um, we didn't see each other every week, not necessarily even every, every month. He, you know, he had his life as an, as an adult. Um, and, just, just sorry um, to interrupt. I mean, I, I, I'm thirty. I'm thirty-four, and so it, it, I, I think lots of people who are are, are my age would, would would almost certainly be thinking, "Well, yeah, of of, of course you don't see your parents every week." <laughs> it's it's that's that's a perfectly standard way of of living. Sorry to interrupt. I'm going to let you continue. No, no, no not just, at all. Uh, but that is that is yeah. life, isn't it? And and. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of uh, Jordan's um, uh, career, you know, he, um, you know, if I start with the fact that he was diagnosed clinically with anxiety and depression back in 2015, you know, and th- but but not necessarily, this was not the start of his journey with mental health a- a- at all. This was the time at which he finally, I think, recognised that he needed to, to speak to someone and go to the doctor. So we look back at his life and 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 understand that he, you know, had undoubtedly been struggling with his mental health probably for many years. And, and if if you, you look back to someone's journey with mental health and look at the triggers and the events in their life, you know, you will undoubtedly recognize probably pivotal moments that might have had an impact. But you also see behaviors and attitudes that once upon a time you might have thought, well, that's just Jordan. That's just a young man growing up as a teenager, being a little moody or struggling. Um, and it's very easy for us to kind of put pieces of the jigsaw together that don't necessarily fit, but but mm-hmm. also do help to build a bit of a picture that, that there's maybe been a journey here that started long before 2015. Um, but in terms of his mental health, um, you know, we, we look at Jordan um, as someone that once he was diagnosed with mental health, had some initial therapy, some cognitive behavioral therapy. 
Um, we didn't know the details of that that therapy, what was discussed at the time, um, as I'll refer to shortly. Perhaps we subsequently learned that information. Um, okay. But um, Jordan uh, Hell was a, was a guy who, you know, as a young man, he went and got a law degree at Northumbria University. He then travelled to the Far East on his own, just backpacked and off he went. Wow. He'd worked in, in London. He'd gone out to Dubai to work with a close friend at his law firm over there. In more recent years, he took a role uh, with uh, the immigration, uh, with the Home Office uh, as an officer, immigration officer. And in the last two or three years of his career, was an officer with the Independent Office of Police Conduct. Um, in in Yorkshire. Um, He had his own house. It was a second house now he'd bought. Uh, He had a a great relationship um, with his partner, Charlotte. Um, He had a little Mini Cooper uh, that (laughs) through an inheritance from an aunt who passed away, he named Olga. It was one of the old Mini Coopers, um, 70s version, red with the white stripes and, you know, and his beloved little cat, Tabby, who he adopted from another family from his previous house with their permission, um, and had this incredible network of friends, um, you know, that, that I got to learn more about subsequent to, to his death, really, that, that through university friends, through his friends in Leeds, where he lived, through his friends in Morecambe, where he was brought up before we all emigrated as a family to Canada in the early 90s. I mentioned I worked in North America earlier, where he was brought up, you know, for several years and and returned to the UK in 97 as a Canadian boy, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, he was someone that um, his friends would look to with some degree of envy. And, and, you know, he was allowed achieving all kinds of things. also an extremely caring and considerate guy. He was he was the guy that his friends would come to if they were struggling. He'd think nothing of jumping in his car and driving a couple of hundred miles for a mate who was maybe, you know, going through some tough times. And, you know, I've heard stories of nights out in Newcastle with his mates where they'd look over their shoulder to see where Jordan was, only to find him bent down talking to a homeless guy on the, on the street. And, yeah. you know, so stories that make you very... Um, yeah, you know, very proud of, of of who he was as as a person, and yet going back to his CBT therapy, one of the things that, of course, you have to go through when you lose someone to suicide is is you've got to deal with their personal affairs, you've got to deal with everything, and part of that journey involved going back to Jordan's house, going into the attic and finding boxes of possessions that included partially completed journals from years gone by that included those CBT therapy notes to discover that your son was suffering from something called body dysmorphia um, that we had no idea about that he kept hidden from everybody really, but to the extent that he couldn't uh, pass mirrors and windows in streets and get changed in swimming bath changing rooms um, and this was the source of his therapy at the time, and none of us had any idea. Um, and then the journals, of course, that we read, they were not complete years, but there were periods of time from 2015. And, you know, when you bring those journals home and we're all sitting here as a family and and, and then you, you read a line, you know, from 2015 that says, I've been researching methods of suicide again today. I found this method looks like an option but difficult to get hold of you go wow you know this journey for jordan had been going on for such a long time and yet none of us really had any any idea at all the the idea that he'd been thinking about the practicalities the idea that he had been actually working out ways to go through with what he eventually went through with but had for one reason or another not done it i'm yeah I, i i can imagine that seeing it afterwards must 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 hit hit home yeah it does it, it it's it's an odd situation really stefano because you know you you read that and and it, it does help fill in part of the puzzle 
for you Be- because you're always going to have that question when you lose somebody particularly to suicide i've heard the term used frequently it, 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 when you breathe by suicide it's like grief with the volume turned up because there are so many unanswered questions there's 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 the what you know as you said what do people say you know to you it, it's it, there's so much going on that that with any other form of illness there are usually some answers or a reason that you, you know whether it's cancer or heart defect or a road traffic accident as tragic as those are um and the grief is immense that there is a reason why it happened but with suicide you're often left asking why um yeah. so in in some ways having that information was useful and helpful to to answer some of those questions really that's a that's that's an interesting point and i hadn't thought of it like that i i had um and i guess this is always what happens when i knew i was going to be interviewing you i had started to think about loss in my own life i, I lost both of my parents um one at when i was just 18 um and one more recently um but both of those losses were to cancer and as much as it still hurts and it's you know just horrible even thinking about the fact that they're they're gone and that some disease has you know come and come and got them from nowhere if that makes sense um as you say at least i i had a sense of okay i i knew this was going to happen it happened and of course i'm i was grieving i think you never stop grieving but but I did think when I knew I was going to speak to you, I was like, but, but it's, it's, it's different in some way. Um, if you, if you lose someone to suicide. And I think you've just explained it really well. So, so the idea of not knowing why is where the, the, the crux is of, of, of the extra grief or the, the amplified grief is, I, I think you put it. Um, so in some ways, being able to read those journals, in some ways, being able to understand what he was going through gave you a better understanding of why. I guess it never gives you a full understanding because I'm, you can't be in his head, right? Not, 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 not at all. And, and there is always, you know, the questions, the burning questions that, um, you know, what could we have done, you know, to prevent that? I, th- I think everyone who loses someone to suicide will always ask those questions, um, despite, you know, the incredible amount of research and understanding that I now have two years on about this subject you will still ask those those questions and look at moments that uh, might have contributed or or that you know we we could have done this this differently you you'll never lose that despite the many well-meaning comments and messages i get whenever i talk about this and you know people saying there's there's nothing you could have done and and you know i know we're going to talk about this today but i'm very clear on my answer to that question is yes there are things i could have done Actually, How? Let, if you yeah, don't mind, let me maybe let me, let me <laughs> maybe ask this because it, it yeah. was it was a question I was I, I was going to come to, and mm. so uh, I didn't want to go down the road and say, look, there's nothing you um, could have done, which because I know um, that sometimes, again, as much as I believe that to you, as you just mentioned there, that can be like, well, you say, and that doesn't really make any difference to me. Um, so, uh, so. Um, uh, one thing I will say is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, with, with suicide, there's nobody to blame. Um, I don't think that blame should be apportioned in any way, shape or form. However, potentially looking at it from more of an academic point of view and taking a step back, and that can be very hard to do. Um, I, I, I read um, in, I think it was the LinkedIn article that you wrote fairly um, shortly after Jordan had uh, committed suicide and you said something along the lines of um uh, depression can't be be reasoned with and i thought that was really powerful um but then you also talk about the possibility of preventing suicide um and there's something you wrote and i can't remember if this was in the same article or a different article but there's something you wrote which um you talked about when you're committing suicide, what, what the majority of people, the research has found out is that people don't necessarily want to die. They want to escape something and they want to escape mm. intense mental and or physical pain, right? And so I have a couple of questions. My first question is, what are your ideas on some of the things we can do to prevent suicide? And, and related to that, um, almost the same question, but asked in a different way. 
are there other ways to escape physical and mental pain? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see how they, they, they're very much linked, those, those two questions. So, you know, if it was within that article, and I'd have to go back to that article, you know, again, and see, you know, particularly around the prevention of suicide, because at the time I wrote that article, you know, that you're referring to, Stefano, that was, that was just three weeks after I'd lost Jordan. Yeah, you know, I, I, I openly admit, um, to be somewhat embarrassed to say this in, in, in some ways, that, that my, but, but it's why I do what I do now, is that if, if you ask me, you know, what was your understanding of mental health? you know, during Jordan's period of depression and, and you know, up until the period he took his own life. And I will say it was a good solid two out of 10. You know, that's that's where I was. I didn't really understand. I didn't know. Um, um, and, and this is why I say, you know, could I have done more? Because with better knowledge, there are things I would have done differently. There's absolutely no, no question. I'm talking from an, an academic point of view, practical point of view, uh, not from an emotional point of view um so since that time and and you know i've consumed books i've had meetings with with leading experts um people like professor rory o'connor from the the glasgow university here um you know i've come to have a much better better understanding um but through all those conversations the the themes are very similar and and there is a a common almost mantra if you like that most suicides are preventable. So the important word there is most, okay? Most suicides are preventable if we are, first of all, able to spot the early warning signs. That That's, you know, what is it I'm looking for? You know, at the time, I didn't know what I should have been looking for, okay? Right. And I now read messages from Jordan that we exchanged and think back to conversations. I now see the messages. I, I now see... The words he was using and and how common they are to a lot of the uh, workshops that I deliver and the talks that I deliver around spotting the signs of poor mental health. So I see those now. At the time, I didn't do so. Spotting the early warning signs um, is, is is really really important. Um, the, the next step is is really um, the intervention. How how do we in, intervene if we do recognise those signs? Um, and whether you're qualified or trained as a mental health first aider to do that, or there is, or whether we're just you know ordinary people on the street that kind of know what we're looking for now and have a little bit of training or a little bit of knowledge, all readily available online, often for free, to know how to open up that 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 conversation. If we if we can just um, do that, and then if we can make sure that we um uh, not only have that kind of in, in intervention but that we are able to signpost and su- know what to do to kind of support people there if if we can do those you know three three things you know learn how to spot the early signs know how to to step in and intervene in, in an appropriate way and then know how to support and signpost people um you know we we can do a tremendous amount there's one thing i always add to those three points as well is is understanding how to support those that are bereaved to suicide as well we we know the statistics out there are that someone who who is bereaved by suicide is 60% more at risk of taking their their own lives as well so i think it's important that we have those processes in place to support those who are struggling but also those that are bereaved by suicide as, as well. So those are the kind of the three to four key areas that, you know, if we if we all learn how to do that, we would save more lives. There's no question about that. I think it's important to say as well that we would save more lives at that moment and hopefully ensure that that didn't happen to, to those individuals again in the future. There is nothing to say that if I'd had that knowledge, I could possibly have, prevented Jordan taking his own life on December the 4th of 2019. But there's nothing to say that he may not have continued on that that, that journey unless he really had the continual appropriate interventions, um, you know, beyond that that point. And, and we know where there is regular support, um, uh, you know, which involves talking, it involves clinical support um, as well, then people can absolutely make a full recovery from this can find the hope that they've lost again. The the evidence is is out there. Just one final point, coming back to what you mentioned before about people wanting to escape 
pain. You know, if we look at the reasons why people choose to end their lives, they're always going to be very complex and very different for each person, but they all lead to, to a, a funnel, if you like, um, where most reach a point where they feel in, entrapped in some way in their life. That might be entrapped through a relationship, might be entrapped in their career, might be entrapped in finances, uh, might be entrapped in poor mental health, um, might be entrapped in poor physical health. But such is the level of this entrapment and the pain, it's almost impossible for anyone not experiencing severe depression or anxiety to comprehend what that level of pain is like. Is like which leads them to, to the only solution to remove that pain, and that is to end their lives. And at that point, they've gone from this sense of entrapment to a sense of complete hopelessness. And it's at that point that people move from suicidal thoughts to so, actually implementing a plan that they've probably been considering for some time. Right. So uh, Lincoln everything you just said together or trying to link everything you just just said together because then when you talk about the idea that you mentioned the only solution left is is is, is to take your own lives in, in in their minds but as you said earlier if you have as an outsider if you maybe have a good understanding of um some of the reasons and some of the interventions that you can make if you have maybe some uh, mental health first aid training which I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about in a second um or if you um as you say know just some of the basics that you might have read on an article on the internet for example and it does how to talk to people it, then maybe you can at least prolong something from happening um but you mentioned something in between all of this and, and i think it was really key about the idea that you know, even if you'd known some of this information, and 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 again, I, I don't think we should really talk too much or, or focus too much on 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 Jordan particularly for this because it then makes it sound like you know again the whole blame idea and uh, and also you mentioned earlier on that you were embarrassed not to know more about mental health to have a two out of ten score. Personally, I think you have no reason to be embarrassed. Um, I think actually society as a whole has a joint reason to be embarrassed that we don't know enough about it but individually i think there's no reason to be embarrassed because we don't as a society understand this but the point i was coming to sorry is um with all of this going on and with the potential to help people in the shorter term and the kind of the first aid the longer term help the longer term support the longer term talking the longer term counseling the stuff that you have mentioned research states can genuinely bring people towards a full recovery is it easy enough to access and is it good enough okay right well, that that's an interesting um, and, and somewhat complex to answer so so right now I, I i can tell you from my experience um that we have kind of two systems out there we we have the nhs mental health services uh, from from IAPT right through to the crisis um, side. And then we have the third sector, the, the charitable organizations, the community interest groups, the, you know, um, and there are many of these, hundreds um, uh, and hundreds of these around the country from great organizations like Andy's Man's Club that's out there in the UK, We've just opened their 100th plus um, centre for men to come and, and talk, something born out of one group here in, in Yorkshire uh, just just uh, a few years ago, um, to places like James James's Place, who and I know the people there really well, and I noticed uh, uh, Prince William was there uh, just uh, recently as they've opened a centre in London, having initially opened one in, in London. Uh, and these are places where people can go and stay, and, and, and particularly men who are struggling with their mental health. And... Um, Claire, the lady who found founded James's place, did so after losing her own son to to, to suicide. Um, and um, there are many of these, but there are there are challenges with accessing um, either the the NHS side or the third sector. When you look at the NHS sector, we know we have a, an NHS that's in crisis and under huge pressure from a resource point of view. 
the mental health side is no different uh, at all. You know, it, it, it will not be unusual for you to be in a crisis situation to contact the NHS and being told that there is will not be a consult available for, for at least six weeks. And you'll be lucky if, if it's six weeks um, as well. So that doesn't matter whether you're a, you're a child, whether you're a, um, you know, a, an adult. Um, we, we then know from the many conversations I've had with people that have been through that system that the, the, the training in, in the main for people working in those mental health uh, or even A&E situations when it comes to mental health is not up to scratch. You know, the, often the empathy is, is not there. You know, you're talking about overworked, you know, arguably underpaid people, you know, trying to do the best that have had the stuffing knocked out of them most times, dealing with someone who's maybe back for the second or third time saying, I'm thinking of taking my own life. And they're probably going, well, look, you know, there's not a lot I can do here. And, 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 I, and I, have, I have heard this on dozens of occasions, people being told that unless your son or your partner, um, whoever it is, attempts to take their own life, then there's nothing we can do. So until that moment that they undertake the act, there is nothing we can do. I've heard that countless times. Sorry to interrupt, Steve. Just the idea of that, absolutely, it hurts my head. Um, the, the idea that if someone attempts and, and you know isn't successful, then, yeah, we'll give them help. Otherwise, they're gone. So, you know, at least that's one patient out of the system. And yeah. I know it's not that callous. But it sounds it. Oh, but it almost is. I mean, the, the system is that callous. So you yeah. know, this is this is not about blaming individuals here at all. This this is, uh, 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 you know, endemic of, of of a system issue here. That you know, we know that people that are phoning up to as well to say, you know, I'm I'm really worried. I'm feeling suicidal. You know, I've heard people. Those people being told, well, go and do some breathing exercises. Go and put some music on, or you know, and then kind of come back to us. It's it's. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, GPs, you know, you know the, the best advice that will normally come in terms of what is the route if you're feeling suicidal or struggling with your mental health, what should you do? The best practice advice is always contact your GP first. So you will get an eight-minute appointment with a GP who has had a fraction of their seven-year training focused on mental health. And that GP will have to make a decision within that eight minutes before their next patient what the best course of action is. Invariably, that will lead to a prescription for medication to help with depression, sleeping, or, or whatever it would be at that stage. And as in Jordan's case, here's a leaflet to a support group. We found that leaflet on... It's just not enough. Yeah, we, we found that leaflet on Jordan's kitchen table the following day. You know, and I think, you know, I look back to those moments walking into to his, yeah, to his kitchen, you know, see that leaflet and seeing a half empty bowl of porridge on his table. And, you know, those, those are the moments that kind of, you know, really hit home to you that, that you know, this death is so different to, to, to anything else that's, yeah. That's, that's out there and you know this is why i said i try not to let myself go to those specifics too frequently because you know it just brings it all back massively but but it's important because you know those vivid descriptions this is the reality this this is what if you lose someone to suicide this is what you're probably going to wake up to and 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 face you know you know to you remember the police officer you know who got to know really well leading the case who said how much Jordan's suicide had impacted him more than anything. And he said, there was one thing I remember was walking into his house and hearing classic FM still playing on the radio oh, wow. in the background. He said, and, and you know, we do this it, job. It, it, it makes it, it makes it, I guess when he walked in there and heard that playing, makes it feel like life was normal, except for one major thing that wasn't i guess is, is yeah. probably that, that but, but i think it was interesting the choice of music you know jordan had, had a very eclectic taste of music and and um you know that that would not have been typically within his playlist at all so i just okay. thought it was interesting that the but i know his girlfriend you know charlotte had said actually classic fm was something we often put on on a sunday morning you know we were in a quiet quiet sunday morning together so you know so 
you know, these are the reality. This is the reality of 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 suicide, really, and and um, you know what happened. But to sorry, just just to add, you know, I've kind of painted a picture of the issue with with the clinical side. What is the issue with the third sector side? But if you're struggling with mental health, and you know, probably go to Google or somewhere else, you're almost overwhelmed with the choice that's out there. And, and it isn't evident necessarily, unless you're of a state of mind that you're going to start putting very accurate keywords in to describe your symptoms and what you're going through, that you're going Which to get you're results. Really struggling, you're yeah. probably not in that state of mind. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're likely to get something back that doesn't fit with your particular situation. And this is why I think there has to be so much more cohesion between the mental health services and the third sector, where there is a journey that anyone who's struggling with their mental health can go on that will lead them to the right solutions for them. Because at the moment, the system is broken. No question about that. It's fragmented. And, and kind of good luck to you if you're struggling or in crisis, you know, that you'll find the absolute best route for you to go on that will help you find a solution to what you're going through, really. We know this isn't an easy listen. Thank you for sticking with us to this point. Steve Phillip, our guest in this episode of the Storytelling with Puck podcast, is an incredible man. He's been through a lot and he's trying to make sure less people have to go through what he has. Sharing his son's story is a big part of that. We're going to talk more about hope as the episode continues and we'll direct you to more areas of support if you're struggling. For now, please seek help if you need it. For emergency support in the UK, go to giveusashout.org or call 116123, which is the number of the Samaritans. There are many more areas of support at thejordanlegacy.com. Mental health challenges are wide and varied, but hopefully the Jordan Legacy can point you to the support you need. After this short break, we'll consider parity of health, we'll reach for a baton of hope, and we'll discover more about the Jordan Legacy. For now, Let's hand you over to our friend and fellow storyteller, Andrew Ford. We're all in the persuasion business, whether that's pitching to a potential client, selling ourselves in a job interview, or convincing a teenager to tidy their room. How we frame our message and how we deliver it makes all the difference. And this is the theme of my podcast, Leaning Forward. I'm Andrew Thorpe. I'm a speaker, a trainer and a storyteller. And I'd love you to tune in to our latest episode. I mean, you've got clearly a, a first-hand account of this. And, and, and um, I, I, I haven't, but I've heard from many other people, who, sadly too many other people who have had first-hand accounts of this. And you're right. It is um, not not necessarily even uh, going as far as uh, committing suicide, but different mental health struggles and people asking for mental health support and knowing they need support um, and just not getting it, or as you say, getting something which doesn't fit their needs, or getting something which takes six weeks to six years before they actually have anything useful um, to, to to support them. I heard um, there's there's an there's an old saying I think it's something along the lines of um, justice delayed is justice denied. I I kind of feel like mental health care delayed is is mental health care denied. Also, I, I, I think and just something to add to this. I mean, you you know you you shared you know the story of of sadly losing both your parents to cancer and and one you know your mother particularly at eighteen and I know my wife will relate to that because she's similarly lost her, her mother at, 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 when she was 18 years old. And um, um, my wife's French and at the time had just was in her first year of university here and uh, um, wasn't aware of how bad the situation was and couldn't get back in, in time because it happened very okay. quickly. Now, you know, 40 odd years later, she's still reliving that um, that, that trauma. So, yeah. you know, grief, grief is grief. But the point I wanted to make was if you're diagnosed with cancer, 
if you're diagnosed with heart problems, if you're diagnosed with diabetes, there will be an immediate process of treatment for you. No question about it. You won't be waiting, you know, six, eight, 10 weeks for this. You will be set on a course of treatment because of the importance and the life-threatening nature uh, in a lot of cases of that illness. And yet when someone says, I'm considering taking my own life, so the threat is, is imminent, we don't do that in our healthcare system at all. And until we start treating mental health in the same way we do physical health, things are not going to change at all. In in a sense, as, as much as physical health and, and, and mental health, obviously they're all part of health and um, we need to, um, in some ways, we need to make sure we think of them like that. I actually think that potentially what we almost need is we, we need a um, national mental health service <laughs> um, and it's linked to the national health service. But the reason I say that is because people talk about I think it's something along the lines of parity of health is what they call it. And and physical health, it, it, it gets way more understanding, way more research. You've explained it better than I can already earlier in terms of the training, having seven years training as a doctor with almost none of that being about mental health. And then the facilities that are set up, the as you say, so we, we've got things in place in terms of third party um, health services but if you don't know where you're going and that's a very simple step that if you had some kind of national mental health service or at least proper training for the people who are currently working in the current national health service then at least that would be a start and then you maybe find ways of integrating that into a broader service um mm. Uh, sorry, that's not really a question. That's just me. I mean, you know, this, you know, this, as you can imagine, this is a debate I'm involved with with regularly. And, and you know, the, the work we're doing through the Jordan legacy is is to move much more towards this parity of health. And, and most importantly, something that we refer to as, as a zero suicide society. Now, now, this was a term that I learned very early on in my journey as I started to meet and talk to people working in suicide prevention, and I became familiar with the zero suicide community, which is kind of an unregistered group of people that um, relate to some very high profile, very successful case studies that initially came out of Detroit with the Henry Ford clinics over there, um, where they put in place a sp very specific framework within the healthcare system that um, over a period between 2000, early 2000, I think 2004 to 2007, saw the number of suicides of people known to their mental health service uh, and actually treated at the clinics um, fall from, I think the number was seven or eight percent to zero. It was an actual zero wow. number for the they first time ever. Yeah. So this is where the term zero suicide um, was coined. Um, and then there are some uh, very similar case studies of success through Mersey Care here in the UK and in Australia and other centres. So, um, you know, I very quickly became familiar with this healthcare framework and, and, and you know, in, in, in very basic terms, it is about ensuring that you have a really effective top-down strategy through government and, and the mental health services in any country, um, and that you also uh, look at how you implement a ground-up strategy where you involve mm -hmm. communities, the general public, workplaces, um, sports clubs, schools, all, all these. Um, the di digital community, for example, the built environment who design bridges and buildings and car parks where people very sadly choose to end their own lives. If you can get a real understanding within those communities of what the issues are and how they can all be involved to one degree or another to prevent those, this is very much the work that we do now at the Jordan Legacy that I founded in um, officially in the October of, of 2020, but we, we got a website up and really started moving things along in, in the spring and summer of, of 2020. Okay. Uh, actually, I wanted to ask you more about that. And um, we, we, we've talked a lot about all of the uh, the difficulties, the challenges, the problems with the NHS, etc. But 
the the Jordan legacy, um, and also some of the other the the, the zero suicide and and some of the other um, charities and foundations and um, ideas that you have mentioned, the community stuff coming ground up, um, are really powerful. And there are some huge positives, and there are steps forward. Just the fact that we're talking about this kind of stuff on a podcast wouldn't have happened even I don't even know maybe ten years ago, definitely not twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, so there are positives and there are ways to look forward and ways we can help people. So, um, I, I, and we're talking about hope. So I, I wanted to mention something. I, I was looking through your profile and there was a post you put out the other day and, um, I won't lie. I was crying when I watched the video. Um, but you, you, you showed a video of Harry Miller. Um, and Harry Miller, I hope I've got his name correct. Um, is that is a college, um, college football. Football. Um, yeah. In, in 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 the the US, yeah, and he he was known for his ability. He was known for seemingly always being positive, but he was came very very close to um, taking his own life. But he he got some support, and um, he now thinks he's on a journey to to being better. And something he said, which I thought was so powerful, was hope. It's just pretending to believe in something until one day you don't have to pretend anymore. It relates to, it, in my mind, there's a, there's a whole business idea. People talk about fake it till you make it, which to be honest, I absolutely hate as a business idea. But it comes back from before a business idea. Um, it was a internal health, internal growth idea, which was actually about trying to give yourself a bit more confidence. And I think his saying relates to that a little bit. It's about... Yeah, there is hope out there. You just have to pretend to believe in it, and then one day you will. I I, I think that's really important. I think there's a couple of points came out of that for me. I got goosebumps when you you know mentioned his his comment again there, because um and a couple of points. It's I, I always remember listening to to the very well known kind of motivational guru. Probably hates that term, Anthony Robbins. Um, uh, <laughs> used to be a big follower of his. Um, and um. He talked about fear, you know, F-E-A-R, and he described that as false evidence appearing real. You know, it, it's you're fearing something that isn't really probably going to happen in most cases. And hope is probably very similar in some ways, isn't it? Because because hope is, yeah. I kind of hope this is going to work. I, I need hope, you know, because at the moment I don't have anything tangible necessary I can grip onto. But if I don't have hope, then I have nothing at all so hope is in a way faking it till you make it and but i received a, a message or a comment on one of my posts the other day i think it was a message actually as a result of the post to say that um you know within his particular workplace at the moment one of the office managers had done a, a motivational talk to the company there were around about 600 employees on this talk but he essentially said you know, essentially what you need to do each morning is get up and, and say, you know, today's going to be a great day and I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and if you start to struggle, just think kind of positive thoughts. He said it was literally that glib. He said, now, you know, I struggle with my mental health, he said, and I actually went and complained and got told I was a troublemaker. Um, so, you know, we've got this situation where, you know, that what is suicide prevention really about? Suicide prevention is about having hope, absolutely, but it is about practical actions. What are we doing practically to prevent a suicide from happening within our workplace or within our community or within the design out environment, all those places I mentioned before? Um, because if, and, and let, let's come back to the, it's okay not to be okay. I was talking to a young lady yesterday who, who you know, was told that so many times. And her response, because she was, you know, to the point of being suicidal, um, a lady I've known for some some time. And and she said, so, so what you're saying is, it's okay for me to be like this then? Is, is that what you're saying? Because what we're missing is, is a really important addition to that statement. I understand why it's been used and it became one of these trendy hashtags, but it needs to be, it's okay not to be okay, but it's important you go and get help. Now, unfortunately, that's too long a hashtag for Twitter yeah, yeah. And, and anywhere else. But that's what it should say, because it is not okay not to be okay. 
Yeah. It, 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 I think, as you say, the, the meaning behind it is good. And um, I actually resonated with it in some ways when it did come out, because I think the idea is it's OK to talk about not being OK. Yeah. I think that's that's what it's supposed to mean. And that, um, and that hashtag, a variant on that that came out, it's OK to talk, you know. I, yeah, that that I thought that's really what we should be. Be, be saying there so um but as, yeah. as most things these things get a bit lost in translation along the way don't they so. they always do yeah again as you say people want to market it and and you know that's kind of my world in some ways but um but it can be done very badly um and uh, and people then go well how can we make this short enough so it keeps people's attention spans and so they make a hashtag which doesn't fully encapsulate what they're trying to say and again the hashtag's fine if it's going with a post that explains what the hashtag means, but mm. it's just the hashtag by itself doesn't, as you say, it, it, it can give the wrong message. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the, the, the more positive messages, um, and the positive things that, that we, we are, um, able to do, tell, tell us a little bit more about, um, two things. The bottom, here's a, here's a hashtag, the bottom of, of hope, um, hashtag, um, and also the Jordan uh, legacy. Yeah, uh, you know, very much intertwined. You know, the Jordan Legacy has been set up as a, a at the moment, a community interest company, a CIC. We we we're, uh, currently have a submission to to move to full charitable status, but but our, our goal is to do two things really: is is to continually raise awareness around the topic of, of suicide within those communities that I've talked about, and promote the uh, zero suicide healthcare frame framework to those communities. To, uh, we run workshops, deliver talks, we run many online panel discussions, uh, and we go and work with organizations um, specifically to help them put in place um, you know, more effective well-being and mental health cultures within their organization. So all our focus is about not just talking about the issue and raising awareness, but what, what are the practical solutions? As part of that, we meet regularly with government and the Department of Health and Social Care, and uh, we, we are a part of the process to help them with their long-term mental health and, and now suicide prevention plans as well. So we're actively involved in those discussions and working with them. Um, but the Baton of Hope, which... Um, is not a Jordan legacy-specific project because there are a couple of other stakeholders and people I know really well that, that uh, together we kind of came up with the idea of the Baton of Hope. But the Baton of Hope really encapsulates probably everything we've talked about today, really, Stefano. So this is an event that will happen in the summer of 2023. I've just offered a meeting yesterday with the organisation that's helping us put this together. Um, we're, we're not announcing it yet, but we've kind of got a two-week period in mind now in July of 2023. And I, if you can imagine, cast your mind back to nine years previous. Um, and um, in fact, at this stage, sorry, it'll be 13 years previous um, to 2012 and the, the London Olympics, uh, London 2012, and the torch-bearing processions that took place all around the UK. We will be, uh, in a sense, emulating that event at a national scale throughout Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, um, and uh, England, um, where a baton or batons will travel the length and breadth of the country. Um, there will be flagship events taking place at various uh, locations throughout the UK, um, and we will be engaging with the whole population. So from the general public to workplaces, to the government, to the healthcare services and charities and the digital world, we'll all come together for a two-week period where there will be events running uh, in regions, through schools, through the education sector, um, evidence of um, where success is taking place to help prevent suicides, um, talks from people that have experienced it firsthand. There'll be music happening. There'll be celebrities involved. It is fast becoming the biggest event I'll ever be involved with in, in my lifetime. Um, and uh, we jokingly referred to kind of Live Aid yesterday um, <laughs> where, when there was talk about uh, flying Phil Collins from one location to, to another. But uh, 
um it will be huge um and a tremendous amount of planning going on and, and more official announcements in terms of how everyone can get involved uh, we are expected by the end of june to be in a position to be able to do that june this this year uh, but clearly quite a lot to to organize um but importantly it's called the baton of hope you know we we will see the baton carried most likely by those who've been bereaved by suicide in one way or another um but it's important what what is important to us is that this will not be just this is not a fundraising exercise or anything like that this is about opening up the conversation nationally about suicide in a way that's never been done before it's been done in pockets before um you heard the great uh, on the news just recently shining a light um um project um there through andy burnham and sam allardyce and the guys three dads walking and everything you know fantastic initiatives um and we want to kind of take that kind of event and and just make it a national huge impact event over over two weeks but we want there to be a legacy from this and and built within the plans for the baton of hope will be what does year two and three look like post Mm -hmm the baton of hope event the live event and and that is the kind of things we're working on right at the moment what are the actions what are the things we're going to expect people the general public to go away and do and one of those examples might be that we know there's some excellent online training for free through some very reputable organizations that is accessible to any of us today i've gone through it myself some of it takes 10 minutes to do there's one that takes 20 minutes to do there's a longer one but you know, there's a 10 minute course that will give you that basic knowledge that we basic. talked about. Um, if one of our goals and objectives or manifestos for the general public is, we want you to leave this event and go and sign up and take that 10 minute or 20 minute training. If we can see a surge in the number of people that are registered for that training, then we've achieved one of our goals. We've got the public to take action. Now, we will have manifestos for the education sector. We'll have manifestos for government. We'll have manifestos for workplaces, all with practical things that they can do. And this is what we believe will make the difference, that it's one thing to talk and raise awareness, and then everyone go back to their day jobs and their lives. It's a whole different event that leaves a legacy of actions that will help save lives. Uh, and and that's really where we're going with the Baton of Hope next year. So, so powerful. And I'm so grateful. I was going to say please, but grateful is a better word that you're doing it. Um, it it's it's going to make a difference. Um, it's going to make a, a huge difference. Before I let you go, because I know I'm taking up a lot of your time and I know you have a lot of these interviews um, that you have to <laughs> that you have to do. Can you maybe give people um, an idea of some places that they can go if they want to if they want to get a head start and they want to get some of this training now? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and look, I'm, I'm going to direct you straight to the Jordan the the JordanLegacy.com website and the the help menu that's there. Um, and you know, just briefly, the reason why that came about was that the article that you referred to right at the beginning of our conversation today that I published three weeks after Jordan's death was to share just the horror that we were going through, the absolute nightmare we were going through at that time, um, in the hope that someone who was considering taking their own lives would read it um, and not carry through with with the act. And that did happen. And I received many, many messages from people. Um, But what I also started to receive were messages globally from people that were struggling um and saw me even at that early stage as some kind of knowledgeable expert i was far from it and and i'm still not an expert i'm you know i'm not a mental health professional at all i'm just a grieving dad that now has a hell of a lot more knowledge than he did um two years ago but i realized that people were reaching out to me and i had no means of signposting them i didn't know where to send them to so by understanding what are those steps, such as contact the GP or Samaritans or A&E? And, but, but then what? As I started to learn about all these organizations and we created the Jordan Legacy website, I wanted somewhere specific where people could see a list of drop-down menus. I'm, I'm struggling with my mental health. I'm feeling suicidal. I've lost someone. I've been bereaved to suicide. I have an eating disorder. Whatever it might be, 
Um, I'm being bullied. You know, there is a drop down menu for an extensive range of different mental health issues. Um, we're going to have our website redeveloped very shortly, and that list will increase significantly. Um, but on there are all the places such as Andy's Man's Club, such as the Hub of Hope, a, a local register that you can type your postcode in to find where the best services are for you. There are great sites like Ripple. Uh, I've come to know the young founder, Alice Hendy, of, of Ripple Suicide Prevention. Um, she lost her younger brother, Josh, just within the last two years to suicide. She's a digital cybersecurity expert, and she went into his computer and was horrified at the searches that he was doing to find methods of suicide, which he ultimately used. Uh, she has now created a web browser extension um, that's been lauded everywhere that when you type in key search words, such as I'm looking to end my life or I want to kill myself, up will come a ripple page with a countdown to allow you to breathe, first of all, and then a whole host of different resources, messages of hope that you can go to. Because I can tell you at the moment, if you enter those keywords into Google, until only a matter of a few months ago, all you would see at the top of the page would be the Samaritan's phone number, which if you are in such a state that you can't speak to someone, is of no use to you whatsoever. But if you can, it's great. But it's in this one box area at the top of Google. Very recently, a second service was added called Shout, which is a text-based service. So those are the two services. The rest of that page will give you all the clear instructions you need on how to kill yourself and where those bridges are that you want to find. That's clearly not right. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount of work to do. But, yes, the Jordan Legacy website, jordanlegacy.com, we've got a whole host of resources to the types of services I've just mentioned. There are many, many more um, as well. And, and they're all people we know of and have spoken to and engaged with in, in one way or, or another. So, um, so they're trustworthy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. Um, they, they are people I'd refer my family or friends to as well. Absolutely incredible. Um, I think that's a really positive note to end on. And um, there are many positive notes to end on, but we also need to talk about stories that we've talked about today and the, the negatives so that we can get to the point of positives. And for that, I am eternally grateful for you to, for taking the time to come and, and, and speak to us today and for sharing your story and for giving people that bit of hope. Steve, Philip, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Stefan. Uh, we will, as always, finish with a story. From the beauty of the glen on a cold and misty morning, it'll shine from den to den, make you smile while you're still yawning. From the causeway of the giant to the port that held Titanic, it'll guide you through your trouble, it'll ease your sense of panic. From the valleys to the marshes, with a tear for our departed, it'll wipe away those tears, bring you close to all kind-hearted. For the meeting of the waters to the pebbles on the pier, it'll make us more aware, it'll kick us into gear. This baton of hope, this symbol of light, this torch is inside us, this flame is our fight. You've just been listening to an episode of the Storytelling with Puck podcast. Your support keeps our podcast going, so please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Subscribe to keep up to date with the latest episodes and never forget the importance of sharing your stories.